Hi, this is Greg Vitti with Real Estate Legends. We're so excited today to be speaking with David W. Buzzy Ruttenberg, the founder of Belgravia, the fantastic development company in Chicago. Buzzy, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks for having me here today. It's going to be a pleasure to relive some of the best experiences over the last four or five decades. I think a natural place to start is that relationship between the Ruttenbergs and the Supuras. It is a special treat, and it does go back many decades to 1946. Wow. So it was after World War II, and as you can imagine, with the returning veterans and the end of the Depression and the end of the war, there was a housing shortage of serious magnitude because during the war, nobody could build a remodel much because of the material all going to the war effort. How old are you at that point? At at that point, I'm five years old, and we're living in a a six-flat walk-up on Wrightwood, 450 West Wrightwood. It's a block and a half from the park. It's just west of Lakeview Avenue, but just around the corner from Pine Grove. And an opportunity was presented to my dad on Pine Grove Avenue in the 2700 block, And it was presented by a mutual friend who wanted to introduce my father to a gentleman by the name of Louis Sapura. Now, at that point, my dad is in his mid-30s. Lou is a little bit younger than my dad. And they had this wonderful connection because Lou is a very warm, gracious human who specialized in managing rental apartments or rental uh, single occupancy units. And it was very good with collecting rent, very good with keeping it clean, and had a handyman or two available. And my dad had a little bit of money, but a different vision because my dad had a different educational experience than Lou did. My dad was trained as an attorney and had a different aesthetic. And so between the two of them, they were a really great match. And they bought the building and they did what I call a a two-brush rehab. The first brush was a broom and they swept it up. And the second brush was a paintbrush and they painted it. And that was a rehab in 1946 and 47. And of course, at that time, people were interested in buying a house. And the only inexpensive and most affordable homes were in the suburbs. So we began to see... Chicago's population, which was topping out at about three and a half million, beginning to reduce itself as the suburbs began to grow. And so the white picket fence and the cute little three-bedroom house for probably $20,000. Kids education. And the education, which was perceived to be better in the suburbs because there hadn't been much in the city for 20 years between the Depression and the war. And so... While people were moving to the suburbs, my dad and mom lived on Wrightwood to 1950. We then moved around the corner on Lakeview Avenue in 51. The Superiors always lived downtown, never moved to the suburbs. And so you had city dwellers trying to find housing available for city people. And their first connection was good and their second connection was good. So in 1950, which is 70 years ago, 
They did the unheard of thing. They bought a piece of property west of Clark Street. Yeah, how about All it? the way west to Cleveland Avenue. So they were at Cleveland and Armitage, which nowadays is about ground central for Lincoln Park where the homes are selling in five, six, seven million. One just sold a couple blocks away at 12 million. 12 million. So at that point, they bought a 20 unit building for $1,000 a unit. And they were the pioneers because they crossed Clark Street. And across the street of the building was a little storefront savings and loan called North Federal Savings and Loan. It was operated by Joe Cook, who was thrilled to have anybody coming in his neighborhood and spending money because for, as we said, 20 years, it had been very difficult going. And Joe was very supportive of Dad and Lou Sapira, and they remodeled 500 Armitage. You can go there today at the uh, northwest corner of Cleveland and Armitage, and the building stands. And Lou is very creative. He put toilet seats, toilet bowls rather, in the wall for planters, and flowers were growing out of it, and they exposed the brick walls, and not the drywall, and no plaster. And it was very avant-garde. And at that point, the only part of the north side, north of North Avenue, that even had a nickname was Old Town. And the Old Town had been evolving since <clears throat> the end of the war, in the, excuse me, in the middle of the Depression, in the 30s, where they had some work done by artists as part of a make-work program to keep artists busy and try to support them. And so you see some older buildings that were interesting rehabs in the 30s, but not much in the 40s because of the war. And Armitage was just a couple bucks north of 1800. Armitage is 2000. So at that point, we were beginning to affiliate with Old Town. And lo and behold, the apartments rented. And their partnership really took off at that point. And after that, they bought buildings on uh, Cleveland near Grant, townhouses on Grant, other properties on Lincoln Avenue, uh, south of Armitage. So all East Lincoln Park. All East Lincoln Park. And so then, was it grade school that you started at Parker, or did yeah, you? I started in second grade because that's that, a funny story. Yeah. Well. <laughs> If you insist and you twist my arm, yeah, I think I'll let, me, let me tell you. So, you know, living in the city, when I went to, to kindergarten, it was at the Bateman School. And the Bateman School used to be very near Bellevue and Lakeshore Drive. It was in one of the old mansions that was there at the time. And I was a precocious reader and pretty good with numbers for a five-year-old. And I went as kindergarten, and by the end of kindergarten excuse me, the middle of kindergarten, I was able to read proficiently enough that they advanced me to first grade. And my numbers were strong enough, so I finished first grade, and I get admitted to Parker School. My parents chose Parker because my mother's mother came over on the boat with Leo Carlin's family. Leo Carlin was ultimately a name partner of Sun and Shine, Nath, Carlin, and Rosenthal, and he was such a good student in high school and college that he was able to go to law school. And of course, he went to law school. He had a roommate by the name of A.N. Pritzker. <laughs> and in the 20s, 
that didn't mean what it does today. Right. We all know what that means today. So meanwhile, I'm admitted to Parker, and I go to be interviewed as to which grade, because my age said I should have been in first grade, but my achievement said second grade. My parents wanted second grade, because in those days, pushing you ahead for academic achievement was a sign of success. So I went to the Parker Library in the morning of my interview with my mom, and it's a Monday morning, and the person doing the interview was Evelyn Hardy. And she comes in and we're waiting for her, and she says, come over to my desk while I take off my coat. And I noticed that the calendar was still on Friday. So I'm a little outspoken, which is probably where the name Buzz comes from. <laughs> so as she's sitting down, I say to her, excuse me, ma'am, but your calendar is wrong because it's Monday, not Friday. I was advanced to second grade. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So at that point, what was Parker like? Was it? I mean, it obviously it's become such a fantastic institution for Lincoln Park. Par Parker was a very unusual place because... It was a combination of liberal and conservative. The school was being supported by one of the McCormick daughters from Cyrus McCormick and the McCormick Reaper, who was also very involved with the Tribune, which, as you know, was among the most conservative journalistic enterprises ever. And this is like a granddaughter of the McCormick, and she was living at 2450 Lakeview, which is a very exclusive co-op. But she loved the idea of a liberal advanced education and Colonel Francis W. Parker had founded the school in 1901. And when I attended in the mid forties, whatever the deficit was on an annual basis, she would just write a check. Beautiful, so nice to have those deep pockets. You'd love to have those <laughs> deep pockets today. Sadly, teachers weren't being paid very much, tuition wasn't very much. And, and the school really attracted a fair number of people from the neighborhood and across that many people from the other side of Clark Street and up and down Lincoln Park area, up into the Lakeshore Drive areas and the 30,000s and 4,000s up to Marine Drive. But the school had gone out of its way to build a really diverse community. And as a child in the class, you're not aware of the effort that the school makes, but that we always had three or four African-Americans, two or three Asian. We had people who were working people with hands-on, like electricians, plumbers, waitresses. And then, of course, we had some number of people who were professionals, doctors, lawyers, and the like. But as a child, when you're six, seven, eight, nine years old, you have no sense of that. You want to have fun. You want to have fun. You want to be with kids that are fun, and you don't care what their dad does or not. And as long as they're a good person to be with, it was fine. Now, it sounds like your father was a huge, you know, you really looked up to him. I did. My dad was a great influence on me. Great influence. And so what kind of law did he do? My, my dad had a small law firm with his brother, Marvin, who had come out of the war in 46, and they opened up together, Ruttenberg and Ruttenberg. <laughs> and it was mostly small personal injury matters, with uh, some little real estate business thrown in there. There were only two of them. Ultimately, they would hire a third from time to time. There would be an associate. One of those, ultimately, later on in life, was Burton Terrace, 
who wound up being their young associate for a few years before Bert went on to political fame. And we'll get into that story when we get to Lake Forest. Some other time. So so you're deciding you're going to be an attorney, probably at a young age. I did indeed. And you knew you probably were going to be very involved in real estate. I wasn't sure about that. You weren't sure about that. When we started, the real estate wasn't very lucrative, but it was just something that Dad liked to do as a hobby with Lou Sapira. Lou was full-time because he was doing the management. It was very intense. He got paid for that. My dad didn't get paid for being the other partner unless there was a profit. Well, and it was, it was, it was for appreciation it over the long haul. It was absolutely long haul. And we didn't know Warren Buffett at the time, but it was exactly the same attitude that if you get a great asset, hold on to it because it's good for you and it's irreplaceable. My dad had that view. I think that you painting the picture of how Lincoln Park was is so interesting. What's so fascinating is your footprint really didn't leave but five blocks almost right. your whole life. Right. It's that That's it, one of the it, coolest it, things really, about all of this. It's really a very interesting thing. You would think that I was a very shy, nerdy kind of guy because I could never leave home. But that's what it almost feels like. But yet yeah. you're so worldly and you've done so much and you could do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do at this done, point. But it turned out... It turned out, as uh, we would say, there's no place like home. And I didn't have ruby slippers either. Maybe we could talk about your mother, too, because I'm sure she must have had a huge influence well, on you. Thanks for asking. My parents got married in 1940. And my mother's dad had been a successful entrepreneur in the wholesale dry cleaning business. And as a result of his success in wholesale dry cleaning, because mostly did business with hotels in restaurants that didn't have on-site cleaning facilities. And because of the, the union activity in those areas, had some affiliation with my grandfather, they were able to do pretty well in their business. And he bought a piece of property. And my mom, who was a very smart person and very independent, and they managed to go to college during the Depression, wow. she assisted keeping the books and records for her dad on the one piece of property that they owned. So my dad was exposed to property ownership when he married my mom in 1940. My mom was 24, my dad was 30. Now in those days, that was fairly standard for a man to get married at 30, but a woman to be 24 was pretty late. But my mom was very picky and she was only gonna marry the right guy. So after marriage, Dad was exposed to the real estate, which gave him a comfort level when in 1946 he met Lou Sapira and had the opportunity to invest as a person of his own standing in this building on Pine Grove. So my mom was very detailed and very organized. My dad was more of the peacock. He dressed very well and he always had big visions. He was never a great detail person. Between the two of them, there was a big influence on me for some style and some detail. So after I graduated Parker School, I was fortunate enough to be accepted at Cornell University, uh, where I played lightweight football and was the quarterback on that team for many years. Wow, you were a quarterback in an Ivy League school. Quarterback <laughs> Ivy League school in lightweight football. You had to weigh 154 pounds. But we had a great league and we played Army and Navy and a few other of the Ivies. But when I graduated, I was still young. I was only 21. I was admitted to law school 
but I wanted to take a gap year, and gaps year weren't readily available. We asked the dean of Northwestern at that point whether I could take a year off, and he said I was allowed. So I went to the London School of Economics. They held my space open. But at that point, just to put it in historical perspective, the Berlin Wall was being erected because it followed Nikita Khrushchev and Jack Kennedy's standoff in the Atlantic Ocean after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. So if you remember, we had a Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. Russians were sending a flotilla of boats to restock the missiles. Kennedy found out, put a blockade in there, and we had a standoff. And World War III was very much on edge at that point for days. Khrushchev then turned around. Nobody hurt anybody. But the next thing he did is he put his own blockade in place called the Berlin Wall because Berlin was a city that at the time of the end of World War II was divided between the Russian segment and the Western area, which the Allies, not Russia, controlled. So it was a divided city. And it was easy to come and go. But all of a sudden, he made it impossible to come and go by putting a wall up there. And there was only one checkpoint in that wall that you could drive through, and it was called Checkpoint Charlie. So fast forward, now I go to London School of Economics, and I'm studying American history, among other things, as taught by the English, which is a wonderful throwback from 200 years before. And during my semesteral breaks, I go traveling around Europe. And my second semester break, I decide I'm not coming back, so it's like early April, I'm going to spend two months traveling and then come home because I was also notified by my draft board that because of the wall, they wouldn't give me a second year extension. So I either had to show up or be drafted. So I managed to get a student deferment, go to law school. But during my travels, among the places I visited was Berlin. And then I decided to visit Eastern Europe. So I drove through Checkpoint Charlie, and I drove down to Prague, left my car in Prague, met some really interesting people there, and then toured Warsaw, saw the Warsaw Ghetto before it became as much of a landmark as it is today, and spent three weeks living uh, with other people. There were a total of four of us on a Russian tour program, and we visited much of Russia, Moscow, and then Leningrad, Kiev, Sochi on the Black Sea, Rostov-on-Don. Wow, what an experience. So all of that was in the early uh, 1963, and then I came back to law school. So for law school, I had a different perspective. I loved law school. I did very well. I managed to graduate 10th in the class. I uh, graduated with honors called cum laude. There was an award called the Order of the Coif, which I also earned. And I was also a participant in the moot court program, which is the oral arguments as though you are on trial at the appellate level. And we did so well at the local level that my partner and I, with whom I am still the dearest of friends, we went to the national competition and we, we made it to the Sweet 16, wow. as we would say. And we finally were ousted at that point. But we had a great run. It was a wonderful time. And during all of this, I'm thinking that I'm going to be a lawyer because I'm spending the time. I seem to be pretty good. 
and it gives me a chance to use my verbal skills. And I'm buzzing around like crazy. <laughs> so I was fortunate enough, I get a job offer at Kirkland Ellis, <clears throat> and I graduated in 1966. And Kirkland Ellis pays me the record sum of $8,400 a year in 1966. The year big before, money. the big money was 8200 Now they upped it to 8400 And I thought I was doing great. Were they working you day and night? They were working us day and night, inside office, no windows, no breaks. What kind of law were you I, I was I was doing general law. I was working with a gentleman by the name of Don Rubin who had a lot of specialty litigation. And I'd spent about two years there, during which time... In law school, I'd gotten married, I had a child, and then a second child, but I really wasn't cut out to be a soldier in somebody else's army. And it was very interesting, you learned a lot, but there was not a lot of emphasis on independent thought for young people. So this is where the entrepreneurship And this is where my entrepreneurship kicked in. And I said, wait a minute, I can't spend my whole life doing what they think is best when I know otherwise. Now, I may not have been right, but I thought I was right. You had a better life. But I had an interesting (laughs) idea. And and I didn't know where it was going. And the real estate that my dad had was still very small, the core in East Lincoln Park, and didn't look at the time very dramatic. It took a long time for East Lincoln Park to be able to grow to a point where it could cross Lincoln, and then it had to grow west across Halstead Street, which wasn't until oh, the 70s. Well, the 70s, there was still the Latin Kings. I I didn't come into real estate till 87, and, and no one wanted to pick, cross Halstead at that point. I remember when I went to Racine, we were all like, finally, we've got more inventory. Right, you went to Racine, and by the time you got to Racine, I was building the Webster Place Theaters in 1985, all the way west on Clybourne. There was a lot of excitement and there was entrepreneurship. Even when I was at Kirkland, my dad gave me an opportunity to work with him and we remodeled a single family home on Drummond Place in the 1100 block in 1967. Wow. And we bought it for $5,000. We spent about $2,000 to fix it, about half the purchase price. And then we sold it for about 12000 so we made $5,000 profit, and I'm working a whole year to make eight. So I said, wait a minute, I think I see a better way here. And I love the excitement of taking something old and tired that wasn't fully appreciated by the community or by the owner and turning it into something that was more interesting and exciting. And I think that notion has really been a driving force and much of what I've done my whole so life. So that was like 90 or 65? 67. 67's when you put that. So what was the, would you say is the biggest, nicest building that Supura and your father did? Well, the biggest and nicest they did as a joint team was actually the Esquire Theater. Oh, no kidding. Yes. So you have to put this in context now. Michael Supura is Lou Sabira's oldest son, and he's one year older than I am. So by 67, Michael had been out of college about four or five years, and he and his dad had their own vision as to how they wanted to run their business, 
and frankly didn't need my dad's input. So we had a core group of jointly owned property. They went and developed their own property and my dad said, would I help him? And we would do a few things on our own. But we didn't expect it to be our major business. We thought we were lawyers. But one of the assets that we ultimately own, we traded under Section 1031, the Revenue Code, exactly. into the Esquire Theater building in the middle, early, it was the early 80s. And if you remember, in the early 80s, prime rate was 21. Oh, yeah. You think back, here we have mortgage rates that are 2 and 3%. And people complain about the 3% now. And people like, complain rates are going up. And then we're trying to do deals at 21%. You had to be creative or you didn't get it done. That's right. It's a creativity paid benefit for me here because there was a lease in place with the movie operator that was paying 6.5%, $65,000 a year, and they were asking $1 million. And I said I'd buy it. And the, the seller, who was a very smart investment group in New York, scratched their heads and said, why would any idiot want to buy a building with a 6.5% return when you could invest in treasuries at 15 and you could buy corporate bonds at 20? Well, I figured either inflation is here to stay or this blip in interest rates is temporary. But where else could a young family like ours, where my grandfather had come as an immigrant, my father was first born in this country, buy a piece of property on Oak Street, which was among the most important streets in the city. And we had four and a half lots. It was the biggest single property on the street. And I said, there's more residual value than just a short-term earning. And sure enough, when interest rates went back to normal, I could have sold it for $5 million. So if you lost a little interest for a year or two, you were more than paid by the sale price. So when did you call yourself Belgravia? How did that come? Belgravia came as a name in the middle 80s, after the Esquire Theater experience, and actually after we built Webster Place Theaters on Clybourne. We were doing the project at what used to be the old Roosevelt Hospital, which is only a block or two from where we're sitting today near Lincoln and Armitage. Roosevelt Hospital is on Sedgwick in the 1900 block. And it was a tired old hospital, and the clientele was appropriate to the hospital. There were many hospitals here originally because this was outside the core of the city when the hospitals were being built. So as you know, we had Henroten on LaSalle, we had Augustana on Lincoln, we had Roosevelt Grant, here, we had, Columbus. we had Grant Hospital, we had Columbus. And all of these were just far enough Columbus. north of North Avenue that in the late 1800s, it was perceived the disease would be safe out here and the people could travel <laughs> by horse or walk or carriage to come way up here. There were really very no, there were no cars, obviously, at that time. So we had a lot of hospitals that hadn't been well-maintained. They weren't getting enough business. Scary buildings. And Roosevelt was sadly one of them. And it had been taken over by the Mount Sinai group. And Bill Smith, who was my partner then, and I bought the parcel. We decided to build the townhouses 
known as Belgravia Terrace. So it was you and Bill Smith that originally yeah. started? We built Belgravia Terrace, the townhouse. Right. And why did I name it Belgravia? Because when I was a student at the London School of Economics, I loved to walk through Belgravia, the area in London in Belgrave Square. It was very elegant, very green. And I thought, if we're going to be in this rough neighborhood south of Armitage Avenue in the middle of the eight, you know, eight, it was 1985, we needed something that was upscale and created an image that would help overcome what we perceived was the uncertainty of being south of Armitage. Little did we know, south of Armitage would soon become one of the best parts of Lincoln Park. But at that point, we were early and pioneering. So we gave it this very classy name. We built round bays. Oh, it's a beautiful We had round bricks that were very expensive. And we still today, that's one of the outstanding townhouse developments. People love to live there. We sold them at 400. They're now selling at a million two or a million three. So the value is enduring. But when we finished, I was always approached by people like yourself or other brokers who said to me, hey, Buzz, when are you going to do another Belgravia? Those were great townhouses, Buzz. Can you do another Belgravia? And I soon became affiliated with the product as a Belgravia product that was classy and had a lot of style. Upscale. Very upscale. Big windows, high ceilings. Right, and had bathrooms for every bedroom. Oh, that was a big deal. And a two-car garage. And suite. That's right. But it was two-car garage. Nobody was building townhouses with two-car garages. So we were very thoughtful about what we did. And it worked very well. So as Smith and I were ending our business relationship in early 90, we had Gulf War. Saddam Hussein was going to make the mother of all wars. Also, a fellow by the name of Donald Trump had guaranteed several loans for his casino buildings. And the casinos did not work so well. So in early 91, he filed for bankruptcy with the casinos in order to help protect his assets and the casinos. And at that time, was a lot of turmoil in the real estate business. Bill and I went our separate ways. And each of us, fortunately, had a very successful career after that. But I kept the name Belgravia as part of the assets. And I said, it really is the right name for townhouse for sale development. And we then went from townhouses to condos, walk-ups, small buildings, four stories, six stories. So who was your original broker when you were selling out Belgravia Terrace? Well, my dear friend Richard Kaplan had a brokerage office at that time, and he had some very interesting people working for him. The young associate was Rick Drucker, who has obviously gone on to be super successful. He's done very well as a manager. He's great. And uh, Sam Zell's ex-wife, I believe her name is Janet Zell. Mm -hmm. And the two of them worked together to sell the product. And in the midst of the sellout, we had the great market crash of 1987, when in one week the stock market fell 25%. Now we're used to that kind of gyration now, but in those days that was very reminiscent of 1929. And people were really scared 
and we all held our breath for months. The market recovered and the sales recovered and we were successful in selling it out. But it was that experience that gave me the comfort to use the Belgravia name as a name going forward synonymous with the activities that I wanted to promote for quality and for sale. I was so in 67, the Supuras kind of break off. You, you keep your, you, you have a great relationship with them. You keep the properties in common. We're always very close friends. But then that. the Supuras go their own way and we see that they bought thousands of units over the years and it did unbelievable. My brother actually managed for them for a while when he was with Plant Properties. And he talked so incredible about the Supuras. They were, they were the best. Lou and Mike really super people and their third generation is John Sapiro who's running his own business now. And so then you and your father start really working together much more into real estate. That's correct. But your father was probably still doing a lot of law it sounds like. Well he we was were doing some law and some real estate and our first real push in the early 70s was to go to Wrigley Field area. Now it didn't have a name. It wasn't Wrigleyville then. It wasn't Wrigleyville yet. But we bought a piece of property on Greenview in the 3500 block with Alan Schwartz and his father, Keevy Schwartz. Now, Alan Schwartz is the Midtown fame. Midtown thing. And he was entrepreneurial to build those buildings out there where Midtown is today. That's an interesting story, and too. And that's an interesting story about it. He had to sell the banks that those would be usable as warehouse space if the concept in the late 60s of having an indoor tennis club in the city didn't work. And the bank so, said, we'll only do this if we can underwrite these as warehouse spaces. And of course, that's the last time that issue was then because the club went on to be very successful. It provided inspiration for Dan Levin and the East Bank Club. And then... Which is an incredible, which is an incredible, incredible story. And then Alan Schwartz has his son working with him now. And Steven. they've re-expanded the Midtown. Oh, they put two, $275 million into right, the hotel. They, they now built a hotel. They have extra pools. So there's this polite tug of war between Dan Levin and his group at the East Bank and the Schwartz family at Midtown. And it's not called Midtown Tennis anymore. It's Midtown Health and Fitness. Or yeah, something. Oh, it's, if you've been in there, it's I've really there. fancy. I've been in there. It's fabulous. So Alan also, he bought... Where Jones, where Jones College Prep is. He bought that parking lot from, I think it was Al Capone's accountant. Absolutely. So we did some business with the Schwartzes. They weren't as interested in doing everything that we were. So we did one building and we didn't do any more there. But before that, we had done a building with them on Wrightwood and Racine in the late 60s. And that's on the northwest corner of Rywood and Racine. That's another brick building that's four stories today. And that had been in their family for years. They didn't quite know what to do with it. And they knew my dad from social activities. And we had a meeting and we hit it off. And my dad helped guide the remodeling there. Then we did the one on Greenview. And the Schwartzes were really more commercial oriented investors than they were residential. And they bought that gas station on Ontario that and was Clark. like it was like a slum there. Right. And then they put the Walgreens they there and they the still Walgreens. have it today. They have it today and one day 
You know, be a big high rise there. I would think so. Absolutely I would right. Think so, so that's how the city changes. So we started with Wrigleyville. We wound up with about twelve buildings there, and some were pretty rough when we bought in, but the neighborhood was very supportive because part of the buildings have become gang infested again. And the experience is that if you can get the gangs out, then the neighborhood will flourish on its own. There isn't much more you have to do. So it was all renovation then? It was all renovation. And we would generally do the corner buildings that were between 10 and 20 units. And in the middle of the blocks were all these single family or two flats. They were nice stone and brick buildings. It was a great neighborhood. We were fortunate to be very successful. But just for history, we were buying the first buildings between five and $10,000 a unit in the middle wow. 70s. And you know, by the time we sold some later, it was uh, well over 100 grand a unit. And now they would sell at two to $300,000. And so then Belgravia Terrace was your first new construction? It was actually the second or third new construction. What were the first we ones? We did the first new construction we did, we did two rental buildings, one at 2230 Orchard, in the, which is Orchard just... Sure, the park. Right. It's a uh, four-story building that was all rental. And then we had one at Cleveland and Webster that we did as well, where we tore down some older, tired buildings. And that began to give us the feel for new construction. And then we built another one with the Superiors also that was in the 600 block of Belden, where we did eight-unit townhouse building, 646, 648 Belden. So we were always dabbling with some new construction. At that time, did you feel like, did you have any vision that this would metamorphose to what it has today? No, there was no way that I had that vision. It's very interesting. Here I am. I just celebrated my 80th birthday. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And when you look back, you see a lot more because you stop and inspect each one of these events and people thank you for what you've done and help them. But going along on the day-to-day basis, you're so busy making the right decisions as best you can. Well, you're in the trenches. Every day, so it's hard to see the whole field because you're stuck in a trench. Well, I was, when right. you were saying that about winning that award and doing all of all of this negotiation as a young attorney-to-be, I was thinking, I'll bet that helped him a lot when he had to talk with the zoning attorneys and convince people to sell their land to you. Or It, it, it must have been a big influence for you. It's it a, was, you're absolutely right because I always viewed myself as having the hardest sales job in our company. Because if I ask you to sell the house, it's empty, it's brand new, it looks gorgeous, it's standing there. But when I have to go before a neighborhood group and I have to tell them that that vacant lot or that empty building or tired building is going to come down and you're going to have one or two years worth of construction and your dog isn't going to be able to use that park as a place to visit and that there's going to be more people living in your neighborhood. Yeah, no Most one wants change. Time, no one wants change. People don't applaud me. People challenge me and they say, why? And what's going on? And I try to be as empathetic as I can because I understand change is hard. But in the city of Chicago, there is not such thing, nothing called 
zone vacant. So everything has zone for use. <laughs> exactly. So there's some use coming, and I try to persuade people that I live in the neighborhood, I care about it, look at what we've done, and I promise you when it's all done, it'll be an asset. Oh yeah, and by the way, it might just increase the value of your property. Yeah, we're looking for the greater good. And that greater good usually helped out. And for most of the time, the people who moved in the rental or the early sales were, were very much middle-income people. You know, Lincoln Park was not viewed as a very upscale community until quite recently. Most of the upscale was either East Lakeshore Drive, Astor Street, Gold Coast, but Lincoln Park was not seen as very upscale. And you've, you've, ha you've had a good hand on helping to bring Lincoln Park around. There's a few different people, and we'll have a few of them on their, this is, this is your lives also. I love the story about the Lakeshore Drive because I think that's so out of the realm of what you were doing and had been doing up until that point pretty much, right? I mean. It, that's absolutely true. Because one of the things that brought us to Lakeshore Drive where we did two adjacent parcels, one at 530 Lakeshore Drive and the other at 600 Lakeshore Drive, was actually our connection with the Sapira family. Because the, the Sapiras had been in serious negotiation to buy the parcel at 530 Lakeshore Drive. John was, and his family had tied it up and they were having trouble finishing the zoning work and they needed some assistance and they felt comfortable inviting me to participate and offered Belgravia 25% of the deal if we would come in and complete the zoning, arrange the financing, and manage all the sales. In your connection with Bert. And it turned out that my connection with the alderman allowed me to get a fair hearing and allowed Bert to be a, a fair negotiator between ourselves and the adjacent building to 530, which is that loft building. Oh, 540. That's uh, 540. Um, it's Ohio. Ohio, 540 Ohio. Right, and, and they were looking into the vacant lot. And again, Bert had to explain to them that somebody's going to build something there. And actually, a taller building is better than a shorter building because it could be thinner. You get more light for the units looking in that direction. And it'll add more value to everybody's unit. And you were very conscious of the way you turned the building, you put the corner units. Very conscious of putting the biggest units up front. So we would set a record for charging more per foot for big units and less per foot for small units. Normally in real estate school, they teach you that the price per foot goes up as the size goes down because there's a premium for one bedroom, one bathroom, one kitchen. But I said, if we were in Florida, we would charge for a lake view. Of course. <laughs> so why not charge a premium for a lake lot here? It just happened to be in a building. So we charged lake lot premiums and of course, we put it on the bigger units, and it worked at 530 Lakeshore Drive. And as we finished the building, I'm looking out the window at this big vacant lot at 600 Lakeshore Drive that was one acre between Ohio and Ontario. Wow. One acre of vacant land right there on Lakeshore Drive. Incredible. And many people had previously tried to buy it, including Howard Robinson and others, but they could never quite design it right get it pre-sold or get it financed. Now we're rolling pretty well from 530, it was successful. 
and this is the the early part of 2000. So halfway up the building we get in 2001, there was an episode in New York City. We were all petrified that the next episode would be flying over Lake Michigan coming here. Fortunately, we had no other episode throughout the United States, but believe me, again, our hearts were in our throat. So we'd seen our hearts in our throat when there was the Gulf War in 90, after the market crash in 87, and then Y2K in 2000, and here we are in 2001, and we have the horrible 9-11 attack Well, how about the way there was not one plane flying in the sky for what, 10 days, 12 yeah, days? It, it was just it was incredible. Just eerie. And we never, we had no idea who would be buying next. But we continued on and we were very fortunate. But from my perspective, this lot next door was really a great opportunity. But we weren't going to take it on until we were far enough sold out that we were sure that 530 had no debt and would be successful. Well, it turned out that that lot was owned by Bill Alter of the Alter Group. And Bill Alter, classic name in Chicago real estate. Great name. Yeah. He's a wonderful man. And he was good friends with one of my dear friends, Irving Sten. Irv Sten I had met at Temple in the in the 60s. We became neighbors on Belden Avenue in the late 60s when we each did a house just west of Clark. And I asked him to help me with an introduction to Bill and to see if there was an opportunity to make a deal there. And ultimately, the Alter Group decided they were going to focus mostly on suburban activity. So they agreed to sell us that lot for $30 million. So that was a big step in the big leagues. But we tried to figure out what's a good plan for that site that's different than all the other people who are trying to build one single massive building and then run into a lot of resistance because the massive building blocked the daylight going to the Ohio Street Beach. So we took a clue from the Mies van der Rohe buildings a couple blocks to the north where there were a pair of buildings. And I said, why don't we put a pair of buildings here? We'll have a short one and a tall one. And we'll have space between the buildings that'll be as wide as the street. Street's typically 60, 65 feet in Chicago. So we had a street right of way between the buildings and lo and behold, we were able to get that approved. And we were building the buildings and we sold enough in the first building to start the second. And we had just sold enough in the second building to pay off the mortgage when the crash of 07 and 08 started. And at that point, it's really is an interesting story because my banker, and my dear friend has been Norm Bobbins since the late 60s. Norm and I are still very close today. And Norm, as you may know, moved from the American National Bank to the Exchange Bank when it was a teeny little bank owned by Sam Saxon's family. With, with Ira Kaufman. Ira Kaufman was the money behind it. Bob Glick was the attorney for the group who recommended that this young banker at the American National, Norm Bobbins, would be qualified to become president in his 30s. Wow. And that exchange bank grew by buying the Central National Bank, then the Old LaSalle Bank, 
then it was taken over by the Dutch at ABN and AMRO. And then just as I'm finishing my project that they were financing, they sell the bank to Bank America. Oh boy. So when I need Norman's help the most, we're going into a crisis, he's not there. And fortunately we paid off Bank America in January of 09, as this thing was getting worse and worse for everybody else. We were blessed. We had no debt. So how many units was it? It was like 600? There were 400 units. In the 600? In the two buildings, correct. And then with the 530, how many? There was 120 units. So it was about? 520 units. 520 units. And on the lakefront, which is a a very important thing. So previous to that, we had built the building where the gap is located today on Michigan Avenue, but they're moving. They moved. And that was supposed to be originally a building. It's a beautiful building. For Planet Hollywood. Well, Stanley Tigerman designed that for us. And so we had that building. Then we did the two on the lake. Now we finished Rennell on the river at Wabash and the river. So Yeah, you slid that one in there. That uh, was a little tight one. That was a tight one. Sliver. It it was an interesting sub-story there because it was part of a two-tower development that came years ago. And they only built a first tower which is the big, massive building to the east of it. So it had already been approved one time. It had time. been approved once, and there was they put in small columns to be reinforced later. But when the building won condominium, they made the garage a condominium. And once you have a garage condominium with small columns, you can't go back in and tell the garage owner, by the way, I'm going to take your parking space because I had to make bigger columns to hold up a big building. Yeah, that's the problem. So we were limited to a small building. That's only about 15 stories of apartments. And so when did you make this big shift to the West Loop? Because you've really made a, you've put your paintbrush to the West Loop pretty good. Well, thank you very much. We were were very fortunate. In the late 80s, we were doing a lot of buildings in the River North from 82 to 88. And the River North wasn't what it is today. It was all empty Uh, loft office buildings and old factories because, of course, when the city was developed, the manufacturing workforce needed to be close to the manufacturing facility. And the manufacturing needed to be close to the river because that's how goods came and went. So you had the river, you had these warehouse buildings, and then you had housing in Lincoln Park for all the workers. And it was a very interesting Set. So when we started to rehab the first one, it was 1983, and it was at 215 Superior, which was a seven-story building, 5,000-foot floors. We rehabbed that, then we bought the one across the street at 212, then we bought one over at Hubbard. And at that point, the price per foot, we'd started out at about $4 a foot when we bought the first couple of buildings. Gotta love that. Oh, you love it. <laughs> oh, man. We had no competition, I can tell you. That's right. That no one point, wanted to touch them. I remember they were just sitting there. Yeah, they were empty. But we we did go out of our way. and We bought one at 322 South Green Street, which was a loft building. It was occupied in main part by the Visiting Nurse Association. And it fit with our format, even though it wasn't geographically desirable. But it gave us a comfort level of being in the West Loop, eating in Greektown, and making us know that there was some excitement available there. And after we had done some work with the Checker Taxi Company in building buildings on Indiana, 18th in Indiana, 
the checker taxi company said, well, we have a building up here on Monroe in the 1100 block. And this is now early 2000. And that at that point is kind of Skid Rowish. It was a little Skid Row. Some buildings have been built already, but not much in the way of low-rise housing. And so it was easy to get the zoning approved. And we built 69 townhouses. We couldn't get the corner building of Aberdeen and Monroe, 1101 West Monroe. And we said, okay, we couldn't get it. So we finished those. And then I was officing at that point at 833 North Orleans, which is a building just north of Chicago Avenue. And I was sharing the building with my friend Steve Berkowitz and his Marwin Foundation. It was a four-story building. Marwin had two floors. I owned two floors. But we had a handshake agreement. If either of us needed to expand or grow, the other would be empathetic and listen carefully. <laughs> well, his foundation was growing. My business was okay, but I didn't need more space. So he moved, took the third floor, and then he asked me to sell him the fourth floor. And if I did that, I needed to move because I don't like paying rent, even the good friends. Right. So I had to go out and I found a building. And what did I find? 1101 West Monroe, which was owned by Howard Ecker. So Perfect. there at the corner that I couldn't get to build townhouses, now I moved my office there. And as soon as I moved my office and we're settled, this crash of 08 and 09 is there. And my son, Jeffrey, who was in the business, had started a project. He got the, the, the non-recourse loan. He got, well, that's a great story. And if you insist, I'll tell you that one too. So Jeffrey was build, building at Carpenter and Aberdeen. And it was a lot that faced on Carpenter and on Aberdeen. It was what we call a through lot that faced on two streets. And he'd started on the Aberdeen side first. And he'd built the shell of a building for 24 units. He had finished most of the first 13 units. And when the market crashed like that, he didn't have the staying power. He's over his skis. He was way over his skis and a little bit underwater. So as a good dad, I wanted to help him out. And I went to the bank and I said, look. Negotiate a little bit. We're happy to give it back. It was MB Financial. And I was happy to be friendly with them. I knew some of the principals there. And I said, we don't want to make a war here. Here's my son's financial statement. He's not worth very much. He's in the middle of a divorce. The bank says to me, well, you're absolutely right. He has no money and we should take a deed in lieu. But we want a $50,000 fee from you to take a deed in lieu from your son. I said to them, I didn't sign the note. I don't have any liability. They said, that's right, but we think you should pay it anyway. Then here's where your negotiation skills and come in. And this was my negotiation <laughs> skill. And I was really fuming. I tell you, I was not happy. But cooler heads prevailed, and they said to me, don't have your son go bankrupt. Just pay him the 50 grand. But I said, I have to extract something. If somebody's being rude to me, I need to get some personal, emotional satisfaction. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the 50 if you give me a right of first refusal when you go to sell the asset. So the people in charge of getting the loan paid back were thrilled. They didn't care about a right of first refusal. They were thrilled to get the 50 grand. Look how smart they were. And I was thrilled, I guess, not to have my son go bankrupt. And at that point, he owed him about eight and a half million dollars. 
and he had about a half million dollar net worth. It was all tied up in bankruptcy. I mean, excuse me, it was all tied up in divorce court. He and his soon-to-be ex-wife were fighting over it. And as a result, I didn't think much about it. About nine months later, I get a notice from the bank that they're prepared to sell the asset for three and a half million, which shocked me no end because I never thought they would come at anything like that price. I just assumed it would have been five or six million, which I would be, have no interest in at all. With three and a half million cut out of the Well, I could be tempted, but you have to remember that this is now late 10 or 11. Things are starting and, to come back. Things are starting to come back, but not much. And anybody who was going to build another condo building would have been shot in the head. Everybody thinks you're crazy. But I looked at it and I said, well, if we remodeled it, plus the price, we'd have $4 million invested. And if you rented out the 11 units that were left to finish, you could earn 1% or 2% on your money. But you had the parking lot. But you get the free extra parcel of land for the second building because it would be all included. And I said, I think it's worth the risk because I also believed for my company that if you're not in business, you can't be seen as doing business. Well, you're not a builder if you're not building. And you're not a builder if you're not building and you're not a developer if, if you're not, not developing. developing. <laughs> and so I said, okay, let's go ahead and do this. Now, no bank's going to make you a loan at that point. They're busy trying to collect the old loans. There's no way they're putting money out. So we did this all cash. And we paid 3-2. And I got a commission. There you go. I'm a licensed broker. So we got a commission and helped with some of the funding. And we remodeled and finished the rest of the building. And we put it, the first one on the market at four ninety five five. Three bedroom, two and a half bath. It lasted one week. We were shocked. It woke you up a little. And it was a wake up. We said, well, five let's, and a quarter. let's try the next one at five and a quarter. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. You're absolutely right. And within a week or two, it went. 549. We wound up selling out at about an average of 550 on the 11 units. We did pretty well. You could do that math. That's yeah, just a that works. Six, $6 million for four. That was a good deal. But it was at a time when no one believed it. So I wasn't sure there was enough depth to the market to start the second building, which I didn't think I would be able to do until 2015. And here it is, 2012. So I'm joking with the people in the office. I say, let's go rent a mini Caterpillar or bulldozer and we'll move the little dirt from one corner to another corner to another corner. Keep the interest. Look like we're building, but Put a we sign really up. don't have to take much risk and it won't cost much money and we'll see what happened. So we never had to quite get there because we had enough interest from the first building that we had five or six buyers in hand when we went so you to had drawings. the second. Oh, well, we had, it was going to look the same as the first yes, building. Yes, Jeffrey already had the drawings together. He had all the drawings and had front-loaded some of the utility costs of the first building. As you know, bringing sewer and water and electric power, you need to bring it in. Civil engineering, all of all it. All that stuff. So it was really easy to build a second building. And we did that, and we were very successful. And we continued to use his format of Carpenter and Aberdeen, CA. Is that's where Charlie and Harry Husanus came in, right? and, and then ultimately, 
Over time, we bought some other property. Then Charlie and Harry bought property. Well, they the came West behind you. They knew what you were doing. Behind me, they got way in front of me. Yeah, man. that's what I mean. They, they got were in front buying of you a lot of property. And then they'd buy it for a dollar and ask me if I wanted to buy it back from them for a buck and a quarter. And I said, sure, because I don't like the inventory land. It's very scary. Money's a scarce resource, and I won't tie it up in land. And I'll rather pay what the market wants at the time than be speculating in land and trying to run two separate businesses, one development and one to be land speculation. And the well, land and I figured that out one day. I went up to Harry's office and I said, Harry, so is it that you sell Ruttenberg a lot one year and then you sell Fifield one the next year? He goes, yeah, we did that for like five years straight. It was fantastic. Right. And, and every other year, Buzzy would need another one and he'd be so appreciative that I had the inventory for him and we were so appreciative that he would buy it at a fair price. Right. What a great relationship. It was a great deal. And we would do these deals for, you know, four or five million dollars land on a phone call. Hey, what do you, you know, I think I need another one. What do you got? Well, we have one over here at, at Adams. And, we'll hold and, it for you. And I say, well, what do you want for this one? He says, well, it's now up to a dollar and a half. I said, okay, done. And then we'd be a year or two later, and I say, now what? And he said, well, now it's a buck seventy-five or whatever. The number kept going up and up, and we would just agree over the phone, and we'd sign the same contract with a different address and an increased price, and we go ahead. Well, and you didn't have to market it. You I already had your models. Well, not only did I not have to market it. But inherent in every development is a market risk. Will the market like this product? Are we right that there's enough depth in the market for three bedrooms, three baths, this kind of design, this kind of interior bedrooms? Where's the market? That risk is gone though, Greg, when I've already built 20, 30, 40 units and the market says, when you build more, put me first, second, third, fourth, tenth on the list. Well, what you had is those really high ceilings. You have the elevator opening up. You've got those really big windows with the transit. You hit on those big eight-foot solid core doors. Thank you for that noticing. That real modern, sleek, clean look. And so I came into Chris Fear's office and I said, listen, I've got people that want to buy right now, but they don't want to move in for two years. What's the smartest thing? He said, Belgravia. Buzzy's got one right now. Which, so I called up and they said, we only have three left. And I said, okay, well, can we just put it under contract today? They said, no, your clients have to be here physically. And I said, that makes sense. I don't want someone walking out. So I called my clients. I said, you got to fly in. So they flew in and we got to meet your staff. We got to go over everything. And like we, I taught last time we talked, I love that line that, well, we're a production builder, not a custom builder. Right. We'll give you choices but we're not moving walls for you and we're not going to change all the light fixtures. And at that point, your company was so mature about the way they handled my clients. I was very, very impressed. With well, them. thank you very much. Because what we try to be is allowing you to personalize your unit. So we have a variety of cabinet choices, floor choices, tile choices. But you're right. We're not custom builders and there's no way that we could do that. So by being production and offering you choices, we try to allow you, as we say, to personalize. And it's been very successful for us. And I remember my dear friend, Bruce Abrams, Oliver Sheldon was passed away years ago. Yes. He, he had difficulty separating custom from personalizing. And he had a lot of hard work customizing every one of those units. 
and the walls get moved and the toilets when, moved. When yeah, Bruce was crazy, he had this little office at 2000 North Racine and Gary Cass. I was working with Gary and I was like kind of Gary's guy. I was selling the buildings for him. And Gary brought me down and said, Bruce, you got to meet Greg. Greg, you got to meet Bruce. And Bruce started telling me what I wanted to do. And, and he said, Greg, I'm very difficult. And I'm very hard to work with. I said, you are not. Gary said, you're one of the nicest. He goes, I, I, I have a particular way. And boy, he did do a really wonderful job. He, he was great, but he had his own way. And to some extent, the fact that he was a perfectionist made it hard for him to accept the normal ups and downs of life because nothing is perfect. No. And as we like to say, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. And I'm Look happy to do you. a good job. And I want to do a caring job, but I know I can't do a perfect job. And I say to people sometimes, you know, perfect doesn't exist in the world. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And don't be surprised that there will be a small punch list. But I promise you this, we'll fix the punch list. And we always do. And that's part of what our reputation has allowed us to build more and more credibility. And because of all of that, when we announce a project like CA6, at the site of the old Hubbard Street Dance Studio at Racine and Jackson, we were about 40% sold out and we hadn't even dug a hole. Yeah, hadn't even broke ground yet. Well, I remember when I was driving down Grant Street and you were building that gorgeous building and I really didn't know you. I knew Jeffrey very well, but my good friend Joanne Nemorowski had the house there that, of course, you sold her to land and with her cousin. And I called her and I said, you got a problem here with your house. Why? Because when they're building, when they're knocking these caissons down into the ground, your whole house is getting shake, shaken. I can see all of your mortar. She goes, don't you understand, Greg? That's Buzzy Ruttenberg building that building. He'll come in my house and fix everything. So I called her up like two months later and she said, you should see what Belgravia did for me, Greg. They came in, they even changed some of the doors. They fixed every last thing. My house is brand new. So... Kudos to you. Thank you very that much. That you stand behind what you do. Now, that Grant story is a yeah. fun story. Do we want to talk about that? Or? Well, we could talk about that. That's at 432 West Grant. Now, Grant is a street that runs east-west, and it runs between Belden and Webster. And it was originally a street on which there was a stable. Because in the That's old right. days the carriages for the high-rise buildings that were in the Gold Coast or the elegant homes in the Gold Coast, long before everybody had a car, people still had carriages in the early 1900s. And so the horses and the stables were put to practical use. And there were several older buildings that were loft-style buildings or bow truss roof buildings on Grand. And on the north side were, was a very large boat truss building that ran almost from the alley just west of Clark to almost Cleveland Avenue. And that boat truss building had been occupied at various times by architectural offices. The Art Institute used to use it in part. The Goodman Theater used it for stage building and storage. And... It was zoned C35, which essentially means 
you could build a building five times as tall as the size of the lot. And the lot was about 15, 20,000 feet. I can't remember exactly. It's got to so be about could, eight, 10 lots, right? It was, should we see, we had four, Shelley had three, it would be eight lots. So it'd be 200 feet by 120. So it'd be like 25,000 feet. So you could build a building five times 25,000. You could have had the neighbors hating you. <laughs> well, that's exactly what happened. I bought all the property. It was the early 90s. And my partner, at the time we were accumulating this, was still Bill Smith. And we went and had some very interesting architectural plans drawn to build a 15-story building with 3,000-square-foot condominiums. Now, 15-story building is the same height as the Grant Hospital building that was built to the west, same height as the building of the Bell and Stratford Hotel and the Webster Place. So it wasn't out of character to the general neighborhood, but it was certainly out of character for the two blocks around the site. But we thought we had it done because it was zoned. It was as of right. We didn't need any permission. But the neighbors got wind of what we were doing. The outcry. And the alderman tried to downzone the property and threatened us by, actually did downzone it and said, if you don't like it, sue me. Well, it was early 1990. We talked about the fact that it was the Gulf War. Smith and I were really going other directions. And it just wasn't worth it at the time with all the other anxiety. So I said, I'll make nice with the neighbors. I won't pursue it. And I sold off 75 feet to Shelley Baskin, who was also sadly passed away. And Shelley was a cousin to Joanne Nemirovsky. So Shelley cut up his piece. He kept 48, gave Joanne 27 or 28 feet so she could build an extra wide house with three car parking. Because right. you know you need extra width for the three-car parking. And I sold the rest for $1 million to the people who owned Channel 44, which was a Hispanic language television station. And I sold it to them, and I shook hands with them, and I said, I know your station isn't going to be here forever. You're in the middle of a residential community. Just can we agree that if you go to sell it, You'll, you'll call me and give me a chance to buy it back. And he said, sure, I'm glad to do that for you. The guy was really uh, very gracious, and he said that. And about, that was 91, 92. And in 2000, I'm at work, and I get a phone call from some real estate broker who called me up and said, congratulations, I understand you just bought this property on Grant Place. And I said, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. So I called the. How much did they pay? <laughs> so I called the former. I called the owner. I said, "What's happening here?" I just got a call. He said, "Well, you asked me to sell it to you, and when people called me, I said, no, I can't sell it to you. I'm going to sell it to Buzz.'" So he kept his word. We negotiated, and I wound up paying five and a half million eight years later for a one million dollar sale. It was good for them. It was good for us. We, we built what was a very elegant... Gorgeous building. 
really building. We really have seven good. units over there. It really set the tone for upscale west of Clark, part of Lincoln Park. And after I did that, I was sadly got divorced from my wife at the time, who is now my wife of the moment, and my love of my life, Tina. But I had to move out. She moved, uh, she stayed there for a while and she moved out. But we built a replica in format, in a different style here and on this street. And so we have another small seven unit building and we've had a lot of people appreciate the opportunity to find the large scale units between 2,500 and 4,500 feet, brand new amenities in Lincoln Park. You don't need a doorman, you don't need all the overhead, and it, it's a sense of really intimate living, and it's been very popular. Yeah, and it, it brings you off the, off the street. I, I think it's, like I just recently moved to a high rise, and it's such a different feel right. to the single family, where you just feel like you're exposed in a way, where you feel like you're really nurtured more or something. Yeah. I, I think that for all of us who moved into Lincoln Park and were living here at any particular time in the past 20, 30 years, if we were 30 or 40 when we moved in, by the time you get to be 50 or 60, you don't need to maintain a house anymore. Most of the time your children are grown, maybe you come back for a visit, maybe you have a grandchild, but you don't need all the elements of a house anymore. But it's hard to find apartments that are 3,000 feet with brand new heating and cooling and soundproofing and updated kitchens and bathrooms and plumbing. And we found that there's a real niche. Can't make much of a profit, but you really have fun building elegant. Well, you're delivering a product to someone that you're really, you're really affecting their lives. Yep. So that's one of the fun things, I think, Buzzy, when you think of how many different buildings you folks have done, and there's been hundreds of them, and how many thousands of units and how many people's lives you made better. Like with my clients, you know, they bought that place for seven and a quarter from you. They probably put $50,000 extra into it. And I sold it for a million twenty-five. For right. Them. And they loved it the whole time. And they were able to take that money and go buy something in Delaware where they built a house for seven fifty. dollars bought a house that was being built for seven fifty, dollars And their taxes are $1,200 a year. Oh, boy. Well, that's a different story for a different time. It is. Go ahead. How many people are involved in Belgravia today? Belgravia today has about 25 employees. Many of them have been there a very, very long time. So 20 to 30 years. How about 30 to 40 years? Wow. The woman who has been my financial... uh, controller and friend for 42 years. Her name is Pam Kaji. And she lives at Grant Place in the building over there. And she's worked with me for 42 years. Wow. And swore she was never going to leave. The only way I could get her to slow down is I hired her daughter to take her place. Now her <laughs> daughter, who is now 50, came to work for me in the summers when she was 15, 16, and 17. And we see her handwritten notes in some of the files. And now she's taken her mother's place. She's the CFO of Belgravia and of some of my buzz independent activities. Because over the time, 
I've morphed beyond just being in real estate. We're doing some venture investing. We're doing a lot of philanthropic activities. And it, it just gets to be more complex. And I find the older I am, and I'm blessed to be 80 and have the energy I had at 60 and still in good health, there's just a lot more for me to participate in. And people want some advice. You mentor people. You guide and direct and there's more opportunity to be philanthropic. And these are certainly times that require that. Alan was actually my first executive type hire. Pam is working part-time doing accounting. And Alan was a lawyer at the firm of Greenberger, Krauss, and Jacobs. He was interested in getting out of just being a lawyer and wanted to get into real estate. But I wasn't sure when I had three of us, me, a personal assistant, and Pam, that I could afford a fourth person. And it, we, Alan and I dated for about six months to see whether we could get along well enough. Because when you're in a four, five, six, seven person office, it's all about personality. Yeah, you've got yes, you have to do the work, of course. But if you do the work and you're unpleasant, you're going to spoil the whole barrel. So the opportunity to be able to work with good people was really important. And Alan was very interested in learning. The first day he came to work, I think it was 89. And there were only four of us. So Alan wanted to learn about the real estate. So I sent him out to keep an eye on the progress of the construction on whatever project we were working on at the time which might have been the Belden Center at that point. The one at Belden and Clark where Tower Records used to be located. And so Alan would learn by observing, but I wouldn't go if Alan was going because I couldn't have 100% of the, our team in any one place at any one time. Not that it was going to get blown up, but that we had too much other things to do. And so he learned by watching. And then when Smith and I split, I became affiliated with Richard Zizek, who was another part of the Sapira connection because he had worked with Sapira for 30 years. And when Sapira had gotten to the 90s, Michael said he didn't want to build any more new projects. So Ricky, who was uh, relatively young at that point, still had a career and a half in front of him. And he said to me, I know that you and Smith are split. Can you and I partner up and I'll do your work? And I said, of course, if you could work for Superior, you could certainly work for me. And so Ricky and I worked together, and that's how we wound up doing the 530 deal and the 600 deal. And we worked together from about 1991 for 20 years. Well, you got to give Al credit, Alan. He really, he really figured it out. <laughs> Alan figured it out, and he's grown to be a great leader. And as I've stepped back, Alan has stepped up and... He now runs the company and is the chairman. And we have two younger executives, John McCulloch and David Goldman. And Goldman used to work for Zizek. And his wife used to work for me, so I introduced them. And they wouldn't be married if it wasn't for me. Isn't that fun? It's a funny story. But so we've impacted a lot of lives. And people have been there. Alan, 32 years. Pam, 40. Her daughter, on and off, like 35 years. I mean, it's just incredible 
the people who tend to come and stay. So I know we're doing something right when people stay that long. You had mentioned before about doing your philanthropic work. And I know that you were working with the chef, Eric Williams, yes. and doing some stuff on the South Side. Could you you know, tell us about what you were doing? Yeah. Well, among the many things that we've done is we try to do some mentoring and tutoring. And Eric Williams used to be the head chef at MK, which was named for Michael Cornick. But Eric and I had been casual friends. And about five years ago, Eric called me up and he said, can I get some advice from you? I'm interested in doing a rehab and a sale on some tax foreclosure property on the west side. And I said, sure. And I guided him through and I provided a construction loan for him at some very favorable interest rates. And he was able to rehab a property in the West community, I think it was Austin, and he sold it to a very nice couple, paid me back, and we developed a closer friendship. And he then called me up about a year ago and he said, I have a secret benefactor, and he's never really discussed much about that, but he wanted to do some work in Brownsville. And would I be willing to tutor him on not just a single family development, but on a multi-family development on 47th, east of Halstead Street. Now, 47th Street is pretty abandoned. There's a lot of vacant land. A lot of vacant storefronts, too. A lot of vacant storefronts. But on the cross streets running north-south, there are great-looking older stone buildings because the city started on the south side. And the buildings that were built in the 1880s and, and 70s you know, either before or after the fire, were much nicer than the ones on the north side. University of Chicago set the tone, and the elegance on the south side was preeminent. And I think so the first hundred years was the south side. It absolutely was. Second hundred years is the north it's side. Now been the north and side. And I feel like it's really coming back to the south I side. I think you're absolutely right. And, I and think I'm glad to hear you're helping it. The pendulum swings like that. So, you know, I've been spending some time with Eric trying to guide him on how to recreate a feeling of Armitage or Halstead, as we have on the north side, on the south side. And one of the interesting cultural aspects of north side Chicago versus south is that the north side was developed by more lower to middle income people from Eastern Europe area. And so they had bars on almost every corner as they would in their home country. And the bar was a place of dignity and style. It was not a place to get drunk and cause a problem. And it was just a it's natural community. place for a community to gather, have a drink at the end of the day, and sometimes take your family for a bite. Well, the South Side, having been settled by people of more wealth, they didn't have bars in their neighborhood. So the idea of corner bars never existed in the South Side. So it's really a very different culture and I said, what you really need is to recreate some of those corner bars because it's a way for the community to get together spontaneously. You don't have to have a meeting place if you have a place where you can meet other than a restaurant where you're just there for a half hour, you grab a beer, meet with some friends, talk about things. It's going to change the dynamic in your community. And if you weren't a person who'd spent time north and south in the city, you wouldn't realize those differences 
I love the boulevards and the promenades on the south side. And mm. I think it's one of the wonderful things about Chicago, all these beautiful parks that we have and all the different, you know, angled streets and the different buildings that come on the angles. It kind of reminds me of Paris in some places when you see that on the south side. Very, very much so. So have you eaten at Virtue? Yes, I've eaten at Virtue several times. And in fact, is I'm proud to say that I'm a small investor in Virtue. Oh, fantastic. He asked me to invest in it. Of course I would be. Well, Buzzy, I thank you so much for this sit down. Your whole generation has done such a wonderful job of making Lincoln Park and Lakeview what it is today. We've had a wonderful run, and I can tell you that the relationships that you make is what allows you to be successful because money can come and go, but the kind of friendships and trust that you build through work and for being honest and hardworking and being willing to stand behind your product and not hide behind a limit and a warranty or some other technicality really makes a big difference. I mean, we had a problem once at Tamerlane, which was a development up there on, on Greenview. And we built, I don't know, 50 houses or so. And in one particular subset of houses, we had hot water heaters in the garage. We were approved by the gas company they turned the gas on. City of Chicago obviously gave us a building permit. They signed. Everybody was living there. We'd sold out. It was five, six years later. We get a call from the president of the association. And he said, the gas company's threatening to turn off the gas. It's November. And they said, the water heaters don't belong in the garage. I said, well, that's pretty weird. Yeah, it's approved. It was approved. The city signed off. You've been getting gas there for six, seven years. And they said, well, we're going to hire a lawyer. We're going to... I said, wait a minute, don't, don't hire anybody. Let me see if I can get into it. So I asked Alan Lev at that point. We have a real a, estate challenge, Alan. I, I do. And Alan, of course, is a trained attorney, as am I. So we know the t some of the technicalities. So he researches it and he talks to the people, his gas company. They say, well, it's in our handbook. So what handbook? Well, the one we have here in the office. I said, did you ever make it available? No, we never hand that out. It's just in our book. And we must have overlooked it when you did it. But it's wrong. I said, well, you can have a tough time in court telling somebody that what, what you approved and turned on the gas and charged for five or six years is wrong. What's a solution that'll be okay with you and that we can manage? They said, well, I guess if you just put a little box around the water heater, make it like a closet. Build a wall. It'll be okay. So instead of litigation litigation and hundreds of thousands of dollars legal fee, I call up the association. I say, I think I have a solution. I'm willing to split the cost with you. And we have to build these little walls, rooms. Put a door on For the it. water heater. Make sure it's vented correctly. All the same. You got it exactly right. So it cost $100,000. We split it 50 each. I was happy to pay it. They were thrilled because they thought they were looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost and they weren't sure they could win. And so all of a sudden, we made friends beyond belief by standing up and saying, we should take responsibility for solving this problem, even though we, quote, didn't cause the problem, but the problem arose 
honestly during the time that we were working. So we want very much to be able to solve it. And when you do that for people and you go out of your way, you build a reputation that's fabulous. And I can tell you honestly that the name Belgravia came from the work we did there and the reputation that you know we have in the brokerage community and the buyers that allow us to have a brand where people know if you buy a Belgravia home, it's quality, whether it's brand new or 20 years old, it'll be there for a very long time and be built well. That makes me smile. And as I slow down a little bit in my career, it makes me feel very proud to be able to pass that legacy on to the people who are working for me. Yeah, you get a chance to reflect on it. I do indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to David W. Buzzy Ruttenberg's interview. We're so excited to have him on, and we appreciate your time and energy to listen to our podcast.